as we look at Luke chapter 2. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, as we read what is what will be familiar to many of you. This is a classic passage on, for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20 is where we're going to be this evening. I'll pick up in verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Will you pray with me? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we thank you for this season of preparation, but also the season of celebration. And so, gracious God, I pray that you'd be in our midst this evening. Lord, we are excited. The children in this room are excited for tomorrow, for even tonight, for those that have the traditions of opening that one gift or whatever before bedtime. Lord, this is a, a great time of excitement. But Lord, I pray that you'd center our hearts and our minds to the beautiful excitement that got angels singing, that made angels be amazed and shout for joy. Lord, I pray that you'd incline our hearts towards that truth this evening, whether it be for the first time or for the 1,000th time, Lord. May we come and sing praise to you and say glory is the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've been around here this past month or in the month of December, some of you have been, others of you are family and friends visiting from out of town. We have been going through a series called essentially the the Songs of Christmas. In Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, there are four particular songs or poems of Christmas that surround the birth of Christ. And these have have taken on famous names within the church's history as they have been put to music or they've been called canticles within the life of church history. There was the the Benedictus that came um, from Zechariah, which you saw last week with Andrew. There's the Magnificat that Mary proclaimed. And this, this evening we come to the third of those songs, which is the angelic song. And it has been titled and called the Gloria. The Gloria. We are very familiar with the term in excelsis Deo, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. If you hear that phrase, you think Christmas. It doesn't matter if even if you grow up in church, you hear it enough even in still a post-Christian society and culture, you still hear that term enough that most people can link that and connect it to Christmas, Gloria in excelsis 
Deo, glory to God in the highest. And there's a second part to that, which we'll look at tomorrow morning, which is the peace part. But tonight we come to look at the glory of Christmas. And I want to talk to you about three things to help you understand the glory of God seen in Christmas. And the first is this, is the shining of God's glory in Christmas. The shining of God's glory. It says in verse 9, that when the angel of the Lord appeared to them, that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And what does that mean? What does it mean for the glory of God to shine around you? Is that kind of like what appears like what you guys look like to me right now with the spots on my face and you guys look rather glorious? Does it just simply mean that they saw this brilliant light and, and you know, oh, like music came up? Is that what glory means? No, glory is something more significant than that. It actually has definition and weight and meaning. The Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod, and it literally means weighty or substance. God is one who is weighty and full of substance. We think about that when we think in front of, we stand in front of great um, parts of God's creation. If you stand in front of the ocean or in front of a great mountain, you, you think of it as being something that is glorious. And it is glorious because of its substance, because of its immensity, because of the power that is given off by this, even looking at this item that is before you, this ocean that stands before you. That is the glory of the earth. To talk about the glory of God is to convey and talk about the weight, the importance, the fact that God is of great importance in our life. You can also talk about this in light in the terms of the way somebody, you think of somebody in your life who is glorious. Someone who is glorious in your life is someone whose word you take above all others. You know, if you, have a, if you have a predicament in your life or a particularly big decision in your life, you may ask five or six people their opinion, but then there's the one person, the one person, who when they speak you listen. When they speak, it holds incredible what? Weight in your life. That person to you is glorious. Our God is glorious. To us, if you're a Christian, it means when God speaks to you, it means it has weight in your life. It is important to you and to your life. Now, it is, it is difficult, other than to give that definition, which is, seems kind of... Um, Aesthetic. It's a little, it's a, it seems too dictionary like to even just state what I just said because the glory of God is, in short, you're trying to define and, and give characteristics and describe God's glory, which is the full weight and the full measure of his beauty and the perfection of the essence of his character. You might as well try to collect all of the Atlantic Ocean in a thimble. That's what it's like trying to talk about God's glory. But you are somebody who's experienced the glory of God, not when you've seen a bright, shining light, but when you have begun to see that God's word, that God's character, that God's essence, that God's story matters more to you than anything else. When you feel the weight of that upon your life, and that is what these shepherds experience, the shining of God's glory. Now, if I could tell you, if you could bear with me for a second, let me tell you for very briefly why it is so important for us to have a God in order to have any taste of what glory is. Here's the proposition, it's this. If there is no God, there is no glory. If there is no God, there is no glory. There's an important question that every culture known to man and every person has to answer, and it's this question. What is the ultimate glory in your life? What gives its meaning? What gives it purpose? And it is, is, it, is that thing, that thing that is most glorious to you, is that thing have the weight and the importance to carry you through all of life? And in fact, to carry you through death. 
So if glory means that it's something of, of ultimate importance in your life and lasting significance, such that if you have this glory, then your life has ultimate meaning and significance. For example, if you put, um, if you put a, a, a rock, if the most important thing of your life is put in, the ro- in, the, in, a, in a stream, in a raging river, a, a, walk, a rock of no substance is going to be washed down the river. It's not going to stand the force of that raging rapid. But if you take a weighty rock, a great rock, and you stick it there, no force will be able to move that rock down the river. Meta illustration, the rock is the thing that is most glorious to you, and life is the raging river. You have something, is the glory of your life, something that can outlast all the joys, all the sufferings, and yes, even the deaths in this world. If it doesn't, then it has no, it means your glory has no actually eternal importance and significance. And here's the great dilemma for all of mankind is that we, so often, ever since the fall, what we have longed to do is we have sought to find glory in any number of things besides God's. And the problem is it doesn't matter how wonderful those things are. Without God, they have no glory in them. They have no lasting significance. Listen, you may say, yes, yes. I mean, the typical things, like we know that money goes away, and yet we still strive after money. But what's this weekend, this weekend for many of you is a celebration of family. And what your grandmother will tell you is the most glorious and important thing in your life is family. Because everyone, everyone else leaves you, family won't leave you. Well, is that true? That's simp- Many of you have found that that is absolutely not the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And to go to the extreme again, listen, one day, one day you will die. And one day no one else at the family reunions will remember your name. And now what matters? Listen, if there is no God, if there is no somebody who can speak into this natural world, someone from outside of the box who can speak in and give us lasting and eternal significance to everything in our life, then this life is meaningless and is pointless. But if there is a God, then those things, even family, yes, even money, yes, all these things have some sort of significance and purpose in your life. The shining of God's glory, it's of utmost important. What is the glory of your life? Is it family? Is it romance? Is it money? Kids, is it Legos? <laughs> or teenagers, is it your cell phone? What's your greatest glory? Second thing I want you to understand tonight is we have a, we have a shortage of glory. We have the shining of God's glory, and we have the shortage of glory. It's not that God's glory is actually, there's a shortage of it, there's plenty of it. It's the problem is that we've been separated from it. And the story of mankind from all of history has been this since the fall. Is it, and when God created all things, it was glorious and it was good. And all of mankind got to interact. And they got to be in the presence of glory. And all their life and meaning and significance because they got to walk with God. And God got to tell them who they were. They understood their purpose in this world. But when Adam and Eve rejected the king, the glorious king, what they're saying is this, is we want to be our own kings. And we want to be our own queen, and we want to run our own lives. And the problem is that we have, have we, our, our kingdoms are rather run down. They're pitiful and pathetic, and they do not last everlasting in any kind of everlasting way. And many, many, for many of us, we have sought glory in any, many number of things, but it hasn't given us the joy that we have longed for. But the problem and the dilemma for us 
is that because we've rejected the glory of God, he did, he left. He said, you don't want me, that's fine, I will leave. And the world has become a dark, cold place that is devoid of glory. It's, these, it's fool's gold is what we try to go after. And we have separated ourselves from God's glory so that even when we want it back, we cannot get it, we cannot get to it. This is the story of history. But the beautiful thing is in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve rejected the king, when they rejected the glory of God and said, we will, we will, make, we will make a glory of our own making. God said, even in the curse, even when he said, I'm leaving, he also whispered to him and said, I'll be back. I'm coming back. He says it in a strange way. He said, there will be one born of a woman who will have his heel struck, but will, will crush the head of the serpent. It's God whispering, saying, there's one coming. There's one coming who will restore to you the glory of God. That's our third and final thing we want to look at this morning. We finally get to Christmas, or this evening we get to Christmas. And that is the surprise of God's glory that is seen in Christmas. The surprise of God's glory. The surprise of God's glory is seen in two ways in in this story of the angels singing. Two ways. First is the revelation of God's glory. How is God's glory revealed in this account? How does God reveal himself in the story of Christmas? Does he come down with thunder and lightning? Does he come down and flex for all the world to see? Does he come down with thunderbolts coming out of his fingers? Does he come down with all of the heavens singing all around him? Of sorts, yes, but not necessarily. Now, what does he do? Does he come down on a great cloud and on horses? What makes the angel say, glory to God in the highest? Gloria in excelsis Deo. Why do they say that? Why are the angels, the angels who get to be with God in, in heaven all the time, suddenly losing their mind and going, what? Glory to God for this. Why? Well, here's why. He says this in verse 10 through 14. I bring you good news, they said, of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. So what was it that made the angels say glory, glory to God? What made them sing a new song of praise? To the angels what is so glorious And the surprise of Christmas is the revealing of God's glory came in a baby. It came in flesh. It came in the incarnation. You know what the incarnation means? Literally, the the root word of the incarne. You know your Latin or even if you know some Spanish, right? What is chili con carne? It is beans, chili with some meats. Incarnation means God took on flesh. He took on humanity. Christmas is a story of of the God who would come in and deign to take on our experience. The amazing thing, and this is is the mind-boggling thing, that has the angels shouting for joy is this. And Christian theologians for the last 2,000 years have been trying to get our minds around this. But it's this, is that God himself and all of his deity, the divine one, the one who threw all the stars into being, is now has come in the form of a baby and a little one. He's still God, 
and yet he's taken on flesh. And when he's conceived in his mother's womb, he is a single cell. Listen, if you're, if, if you're here because someone dragged you here, if you're here because this is the American tradition and you don't believe in all this and this miracles thing and this whole God, this, this God who became flesh and this sounds like something out of like a, a, a Greek kind of drama, as Christians, we know this is weird. We know it's weird, but it's also why we think he's, if, if we've become convinced, if you've actually considered it, if you've become convinced that it's actually happened, then he is worthy of worship. Then you ought to lose your mind like the angels. And the reason why they're so excited and why they're amazed is because God doesn't become flesh every day. It's amazing to us. It's not that this is run of the mill. This is, this is something beyond us, beyond our comprehension. But this is what God has done. Is the surprise of Christmas is that God has not come down with thunderbolts and shining lights and swept the nations immediately and crushed all of his enemies, but that he's come as a child. Here's what it says to not get myself doctrinally in trouble. I'll just take it straight from Scripture about the incarnation. It says this in Philippians 2, verses 5 and 8. Paul says this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus.'" He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see why this is such a shock and why this is such a surprise? God comes as God. But he conceals the rah-rah of his glory. The, the bells and whistles of his glory. All the things, that, the pomp and circumstance of his glory that come with it. He's concealed it in flesh. It says he's emptied himself of those things. But, he, and this is what Charles Wesley says, right? He says this, mild he lays his glory by. We sing that in our Christmas hymns. He lays aside his glory, but here's... Uh, it's almost an oxymoron of Christmas. But in that, in that emptying, in that act of emptying himself, of putting aside his glory, God actually reveals the fullest expression of his glory. Because what he's, his glory is not ultimately, the expression of his glory is not the pomp and the circumstance. It's not the lights and the angels that come with it. It is the essence of his character, which is love and beauty and goodness and power. And here he shows it in Jesus. And he shows the essence and goodness of his character by the fact that he would enter into our brokenness and into our suffering. You have a God like this? A God who would say, listen, you've separated yourself from me and my glory. Now let me show you how glorious my character really is. A people who have run from me. A people who have wasted their last dime on anything that might be a shred of glory. And they, I'm, I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to make them mine. In the incarnation, God suffers humiliation. And it shows the beauty of who he is. The powerful becomes powerless and the strong becomes weak. God, the invulnerable, takes on flesh and becomes vulnerable. The unapproachable God becomes approachable. God becomes a baby. This is what it says. 
In John 1, which is the most theological of the Gospels, explaining what happens in the incarnation, he says this in verses 14 of chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know what God is like? You look to Jesus. Paul jumps on this bandwagon too in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, Jesus is the fullest radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to see the glory of Jesus, you've got to look at the life of Christ. When Jesus came in, he didn't lose any glory in that his character and his essence are still the same, but he emptied himself of all the bells and whistles so that you might, he might show you the fullness, the beauty, the gloriousness of his character. Charles Wesley, another Christmas hymn quote, said, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. This is bizarre. <laughs> you most want to see God, you see it in flesh. You see it in God who took on flesh. It is amazing, it's so amazing that it made angels hold their heads in wonder and amazement. So the revelation of God's glory, that's surprise one. The second surprise is this. It's the recipients of God's glory. To whom does the news come first? Where does the news go? To whom is the glory revealed first? To kings? Does it go to the religious elites? Does it go to the righteous? Does it go to the great strong men of the world? Does Caesar know first? Does it go to the morally superior? Uh-uh. No, the glory of God is first shown to whom? The shepherds. Now, to understand the, the, how this would have sounded to the ears of a first century reader, I have to understand shepherds and their place in society. They were the lowest of the low. Uh, the only people who would be considered lower than them were, le- were lepers. They were as lepers, and because, lep- because lepers would actually kill you by being around them. So they were the lowest of the low. If someone kills you by being around them, they're the low. But shepherds are low. They were thought on par with a tax collector. They were, I would say, they were kind of like a loan shark. They, they, they were untrustworthy. They held in universal contempt. The rabbis actually prohibited good, a good moral Jew could not buy wool, milk, or meat from shepherds because they assumed that they had stolen it. That's how lowly they were thought. One, one ancient Jewish writing said this, no position in the world is as despised as, as that of shepherds. They were considered so untrustworthy, they were, their, their testimony in a court of law was not accepted. They were, by all accounts, the lowest of the low, the unclean, the unreliable, universally considered petty thieves, and they were dirty. By the way, again, if, if you're considering Christianity, but you're not there yet, understand this. People who say that Christianity is a lie don't understand what's going on here. Most of the great testimonies of the truth that these things happened came from people in that day whose testimony would never have been accepted. It came from women whose testimony in that day was not accepted in a court of law, and it came from shepherds and the poor. The only reason why you would use their testimony is if that's actually where you got the testimony from. If you're trying to convince somebody in first century ancient Near East of the truth of Christianity, of the birth of Jesus, of the death of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus, you would never use these people as the people you put on the witness stand. 
The only, the only explanation for using them is that they were actually the witnesses and that they actually, they actually testified to these things. That's a side point. Shepherds. Dirty, thieving shepherds. That's who God's glory comes. The glory of God, the message of the gospel, is not revealed to the mighty and to the good, to the wise and to the elite, but to the lowest of the low. The message of Christmas is that Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, is for broken sinners, not for perfect saints. It's for screw-ups, not for all-stars. Praise God. Praise God for that. If you've never been to church and you think that it's just a bunch of holier-than-thou sort of people, I'm sorry you've gotten that impression because that is the exact opposite. That is the exact opposite. The gospel comes to people in this room. If they are true Christians, they have come to God because God has revealed himself and they realize that they are the lowest of the low and that they are desperately in need of glory. Jesus, you remember, said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but it's the sick. He said, I do not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So if you've been called, it means you're a sinner. Are you amazed that God would come to you and reveal to you his glory? Um, there's a writer who I enjoy reading, a guy named John Ortberg. He's also a speaker, but he has a great story about being a kid that I think describes this well. And since there's lots of kids here this evening, maybe this will connect to you, although the illustration's kind of old. He tells the story of being about 10 years old, and his favorite baseball team was the Chicago Cubs. And the time in which he was watching the Chicago Cubs, their entire infield made the all-star team pretty much. They were phenomenal. Now, they still didn't win the World Series, obviously. But his favorite of all the infield, though, was the catcher, Randy Hundley. Well, one day, wonder of all wonders, Randy Hundley came to his neighborhood and was just kind of visiting neighborhood kids in Chicago. And he had come to his friend's house down the streets, and his friend's mother had called John's mom and said, Is Johnny there? Randy Hundley is here to see him. Well, John's mom did not know who Randy Hundley was, and she said, well, little Johnny is taking his piano lessons right now. He will have to come back later to visit or play, and hung up the phone. She told little Johnny after his piano lesson that John, Randy Hundley was going to come over, had called, and was asking about coming to see him. And she said that she told him what he had said, what she had said about, you know, I told him he could come later on. He said he was so furious that his mommy began to look at the, at the phone book to see what child protective services number he could call to get rid of his mother, to have her taken away for this abuse to him as a kid. But later on that day, wonder of wonders happens again. Knock, knock, knock. Randy Hundley had gone off. He had to have play a baseball game that afternoon. He'd come back that evening, though. He came to little Johnny's house specifically to see Johnny, to encourage him. And for... For John Orford, what he said is this, and I think it's so great. He said for me, to a 10-year-old kid, the glory of Randy Hundley in that moment wasn't that he had a howitzer for an arm. His glory was that someone as important as him would take the time to come to the home of a little kid. The glory was that one day this man had laid aside the glory of his bat and his glove, and he had come to be with me. That is a pedantic illustration for the glory of what it is for God to come into your life. Listen, you may have had that similar, some kind of, I remember standing next to Shaquille O'Neal as a nine-year-old, the glory and the wonder of it all. (laughs) 
Listen, that is, that is this. When you've actually come to realize that God himself has come to reveal himself to you. You, the sinner of all sinners. Are you amazed at the wonder of this? And here's, let me just say this, and we'll come to a close. Notice this. The glory of God breaks into these shepherds when they're completely not ready. You see, the lie that so many of us have is that I got to get ready for Jesus. I got to clean up my life, and then then, then I'll invite him in. That 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 is a fool's errand. There is a great hymn that we sing that says, If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. The glory of God and the beauty of it is you don't have to come. He comes to you first. And he reveals himself to you. Isn't that remarkable? We don't clean up before God comes to us. And in fact, the message of Christmas is that you can't get ready for Christmas. And isn't that ironic? Because you and I, we just spent a month and a half getting ready for Christmas. And most of you have at least six hours of wrapping to do tonight. And yet the glory and the beauty of Christmas is you can't get ready for it. And invades your space. It doesn't wait for you to clean up. And become pretty. He comes into your life and he makes it beautiful himself. Let me summarize and come to a close this way. The angels say this is good news. That's literally where we get the word Eoangelion, which is the gospel. I have good news for you, shepherds. And here is the gospel, plain and simple, in case you didn't get it in my lame illustrations. Jesus Christ had the glory of God. But when he came to earth, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of all the bells and whistles, and what does that mean? It actually says this in Isaiah, that he had no beauty that we would desire him. He didn't just take on our reality. He, take on, he, take on the, he took on the ugliness of our reality. He, it says in Isaiah 53 that he was despised and rejected. Everything that is glorious, beauty, honor, importance, Jesus was stripped of all of it. All of it. He was stripped of his beauty, He was stripped of his physical abilities. He was beaten to a pulp. He was stripped of his honor. He lost all the glory that he had. And the question is, why? So that you and me, the shepherds and the lonely ones of this world, could be clothed in glory. See, the story of the cross, on the cross there's a great trade that happens. You know the story of the Bible is this Jesus he lived his life. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he goes and he dies a death for us. And on that death, he takes our sin. He says, God credits this to, himself, to Jesus. All your sins are put onto his account. But guess what? There's a, second, there's a second wire in that transfer. All his righteousness, all his glory is transferred to your account. So that God, when he looks at you, he sees one who is beautiful, and acceptable and lovely in his sight. You see the beauty of it all. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you see Jesus as glorious this Christmas? So let me ask you this. So how do we respond to this presentation the surprise presentation of the glory of God. How do you respond? Really quickly, it's in verse 20, but before we even get to that, let me just say this. If, if you're one of those people who's new to church or you were dragged here, if you don't believe, that is totally okay. 
I want you to see the response of the shepherds. It says, they say, let's go see this thing. Could I at least ask you, could you be curious enough? There is no other, you can, you can search far and wide, there is no other world religion that talks of a God who would come to stoop to this kind of humiliation to make you glorious and beautiful. So might you be curious enough to come see? And for the rest of you, if you become convinced and Jesus Christ is the full glory of God, and you bask in the fact that he has made you glorious in God's sight, the response of the shepherds is the right response. And what is that? They rejoice and they praise God. So let's do just that.